0: everyone, and welcome to Myth in the Mojave, 30 minutes of storytelling and conversation about mythology and why it's important to our lives today. I'm your personal mythologist, Catherine Svela. Myths and stories are essential tools and guides for creative living in this crazy world, and I want to share some of what I'm learning from them with you. Welcome to part two of our exploration of the Greek titans and titanism as a force in our world today with far-reaching and potentially disastrous implications. Titanism is associated with our longing for the unbounded, just like the Greek titans were themselves uh, without limit, excessive, violent, so is this psychic phenomenon. And I got the title for this program, Huge is Ugly, from an essay, actually, it's the text of a lecture, that was delivered by James Hillman in 1989, titled And Huge is Ugly Zeus and the Titans. James Hillman has some very interesting ideas about the Titanic and how that shows itself. He found the Greek Titans to be a very useful image. For inflationary tendencies in our Western heroic ego. Especially if you're in the United States or if you're paying attention to American politics, <laughs> I don't think I need to name names or point to closely to specific things that are happening in our culture and in the news. And of course, there are variations of this in other parts of the world for us to see that there is something very big and grandiose that is going on in the world that all of us need to take very seriously. Now, the word titans is kind of unusual, or maybe it seems like a little bit old-fashioned, but it actually gets used more than you might think in exactly the context that I'm talking about right now. For example... Just last week, I went to the New York Times to find a headline about Roger Isles, the head honcho at Fox News who is stepping down because he's been accused of sexual harassment. And the headline of this article was Roger Isles, a TV titan at the peak of his power. A TV titan. This was followed a couple of days later by another article with the headline, Roger Isles Stares into the Abyss from Atop the TV News World. And I found this really interesting because it is such a beautiful reflection of the language of the myth itself. Our culture is very heavily inculcated with mythological references to a degree that we're generally not very aware of. Becoming aware of it is very important and part of the purpose of this program. Titans, the Titanic, the lawless, boundless, inflationary, and inflated, the longing for the unlimited. In the last program, I told you the Greek myth of how the Titans were born as the first generation of gods, if you will, to Father Heaven and Mother Earth how Cronos, the youngest titan, overthrew his father, Heaven, by castrating him and then took over, and how Cronus then swallowed each of his children as they were born in an attempt to protect his position and make sure that he wasn't going to be overthrown then himself. And this didn't work because his wife, Rhea, who was a refinement on the original Mother Earth, Gaia, uh, tricked him and got him to swallow a stone instead of Zeus. And when Zeus grew up, then he released his siblings and the Olympians took on the Titans and fought a 10-year war called the Titanomachia in which they finally won with the aid of three hideous brothers who had been repressed to the bowels of the Earth. Now, if you want a refresher on that story, you can find the original program on the Titanomachia in the Archives. In that program, as you might recall, I said that the Titans and the Olympians represented two different worlds and also two ways of being. So just as the Titanic is still with us, the Olympian is also with us. And it's Hillman's ideas about what Zeus and the Olympians represent and how those might be potential cures or responses to titanism that I ultimately want to get into in this program. You may also recall that I said that the Greeks used the word God to describe, to personify dynamics and forces, physical and psychological realities that we're still engaged with. Hesiod called night a god, for example. He called the sun a god. And this type of language isn't our fashion now, and yet the autonomous powers upon which our lives depend, the foundations of our reality, are essentially the same as they were for Hesiod. And now we use psychological terms to describe experiences and feelings, like retribution, strife, And joy that Hesiod called gods. And they they still visit us and shape our lives in ways that are beyond our control. So the Titanic refers to the state of being, the force, experience, and posture of, of the unlimited, the unbounded, the excessive, that which has a lack of respect for limits. They are also connected to technology via the titan Prometheus, the titan champion of human beings who stole fire for us and thereby brought us a bit closer to the gods. Prometheus, that's another myth that you can find in the Myth in the Mojave Archives. Prometheus, according to some accounts, created human beings, which was one of the reasons why he had so much Love for us. And we still use this term Promethean to describe our large aspirations. Prometheus and the Prometheans have been connected over the centuries with aspiration, with the human impulse to create. Technology is one place where this comes in, and with the consequences of those desires. Prometheus, as you might recall, overreaches. He goes against Zeus in stealing fire, and he suffers as a result. And so do human beings. Carl Quirine, who wrote a beautiful book about Prometheus, said that he was the archetype of human existence. And you may recall that Prometheus is trickster-like. And we've also talked on this program about Trickster and Trickster as a benefactor of human beings and how like him we are. In being in this middle ground, being conscious of the possibilities to do things and then driven to try and realize those possibilities even when uh, we shouldn't or ultimately can't. The Titanic. This, this impulse towards titanism appears to be part of human nature, part of the dynamic of our psyche. And I also think that titanism is especially American. An American has come to be defined, really, as an individual who can be anything, do anything, have anything. That's what we're exhorted towards. The American image of freedom has become the image of the unlimited and the personal as a sacrosanct right that each of us has. This image of American freedom is used to defend the excess and violence in our culture. You can also find the Titanic in the common emphasis on big is better, on the shock and awe on battlefields and movie screens. The Titanic contributes to this blind belief in the ultimate morality of self-interest, and our tolerance for greed. These are all shadow aspects of the Titanic, but everything does of course have its positive sides. The United States has been a place that people could escape to, a place for people to escape from the limiting factors of their lives, a place where people could reinvent themselves or more fully express themselves. My point is that not only can we not rid ourselves completely of this dynamic called the Titanic, but we wouldn't necessarily want to. However, the way that it's currently being expressed is a huge problem, to say the least. So what is the proper response to Titanism? How do we keep the Titanic within bounds? Now, according to James Hillman, the effect of huge, catastrophic events, the effects of, of global forces, and he starts his essay off wondering about our continuing fascination with the Holocaust, certainly an atrocity, like on a, on a scale beyond belief. And we could add to that now various other genocides or perhaps the the fact that we're living in this situation called global, global warming. He says these the scale of these events dwarf our sensitivities and put us into a state that Robert Lifton called psychic numbing. It used to be that people were really anxious. Now our common collective experience is of numbness. And Hillman says that one way that we can connect our day-to-day experience in this emotionally numb state with the Titanic is through the symptom of stress. He reminds us that the root of the word titan means to stretch, to extend, to strive. Hesiod defined it as to strain. And so we have this straining, striving effort of stress that is the feeling of the titanic in our Promethean ego. So we have that yearning, right, for the boundless and the unlimited in ourselves this also taking place in the culture and it creates stress we're stressed out we're stretched too thin and that's not the same thing as hubris it's not the same thing as the failure to remember the gods this titanism takes place at the level of the gods so we're experiencing it but we aren't it Now, when I say, what's the possible cure for the unlimited and the unbounded, we make a move that seems logical. We say, oh, it must be limits. It must be bounds. But the problem is that limitation in our society, as Hillman notes, tends to mean repression. We try and control the things that we don't like, that we feel are spinning out of control through laws and discipline, but that leads to totalitarianism. One form of titanism can become another, and that is something that we're seeing in our presidential election right now. I think that most Americans are actually united in their stress about what is out of control, about what has gone beyond the bounds of any kind of human scale, what has escaped our imagination. And I'm using that word very deliberately. And for some of us, it means to clamp down. It means to build walls. It means to keep out but that's actually not the solution. Hillman says that in this state of hugeness and enormity, we've lost the gods. And that's a tricky word, I know. But remember what I was saying earlier about how the Greeks used the word gods. We're not talking here about the god. In fact, in the face of so many terrible things happening, belief in the God, the God of Christianity or Judaism or Islam, it gets increasingly difficult for a lot of us. And belief belief is not what we're talking about here. It's not what's required. In fact, Hillman reminds us that belief is only one Posture relative to the gods, and we're using God's little g here. Attention is another. We do have lots of gods, gods in the little g polytheistic sense in this country and in the world generally. Now, I don't want this conversation to take place on the level of abstraction because abstraction. The global and the universal and the abstracted are all part of the Titanic. So let me pull an illustration out of a novel that I happen to be reading right now in this very synchronistic way. I picked up Neil Gaiman's novel, The American Gods, recently. And I haven't finished it yet, but this book couldn't be more on target. Now, I'm sure that Gaiman was consciously working with mythological motifs, duh. So, uh, you remember what I said earlier about how our culture is so thoroughly informed, like literally webbed with mythological motifs. Well, Gaiman is doing something the Greeks called mythopoesis. He is consciously shaping and extending and exploring mythologies. And the central plot line of this book, as far as I can tell, is a great battle between the gods, between the old gods and the new gods. The old gods are figures that you would recognize from mythologies. They're gods like Odin, who were brought to the United States, to America, by immigrants, servants, slaves. People who came here and brought the belief systems and the figures of those beliefs from their homelands. Now, these gods are on their way out. They become kind of shabby peripheral figures for the most part because not very many people believe in them anymore. Give them what they need. Give them the attention that they need. Worship them. And they are fighting against the new gods. Now, I find Gaiman's new gods very interesting because these new gods have names like Mr. Town, Mr. Stone, Mr. Internet, Mr. World. They are abstractions, they are not very well articulated. They drive in big black sedans or stretch limos, and they seem to wear suits. Their description stands in stark contrast to the really richly varied uh, characters of these old gods. So Gaiman is giving us a battle between these enormous universal abstractions that we are giving our attention and our time and our money and in very real ways our devotion. The battle between them and the old gods in all of their various forms, with all of their various faces and costumes. It's a marvelous illustration of the Titanic versus the Olympian as Hillman gives it to us. The Titanic, as this unbounded and unlimited, and therefore then abstract and not very well imagined, versus the Olympian, which is very particular, personified characters that have been elaborated on and depicted in various ways for centuries, and therefore then are something that we can grab onto a presence that we can relate to. Now, Gaiman didn't just stop there in his exploration of what's happened to the gods in the United States. He also showed us how those who claim to believe in the old gods have lost that essential, the essential particularity of the god and turned it into a principle. And I want to read an excerpt from the book that describes this phenomenon of abstraction. This character, Wednesday, who is a face of Odin, has, is meeting with one of the old goddesses who is now going by the name of Easter, and he's trying to convince her to join the war, And here the excerpt begins. Easter put her slim hand on the back of Wednesday's square gray hand. I'm telling you, she said, I'm doing fine. On my festival days, they still feast on eggs and rabbits, on candy and on flesh, to represent rebirth and copulation. They wear flowers in their bonnets, and they give each other flowers. They do it in my name. More and more of them every year. "'In my name, old wolf.' "'And you wax fat and affluent on their worship and their love,' he said dryly. "'Don't be an asshole.' Suddenly she sounded very tired. She sipped her mochaccino. "'Serious question, my dear. Certainly I would agree that millions upon millions of them give each other tokens in your name, and that they still practice all the rites of your festival, even down to hunting for hidden eggs.' "'But how many of them know who you are, eh?' "'Excuse me, miss?' "'He says this to their waitress. "'She said, "'You need another espresso?' "'No, my dear, I was just wondering "'if you could solve a little argument "'we're having over here. "'My friend and I were disagreeing "'over what the word Easter means. "'Would you happen to know?' "'The girl stared at him "'as if green toads had begun "'to push their way between his lips. "'Then she said,' I don't know about any of that Christian stuff. I'm a pagan. The woman behind the counter said, I think it's like Latin or something for Christ has risen, maybe. Really? said Wednesday. Yeah, sure, said the woman. Easter, just like the sun rises in the east, you know. The risen sun, of course. A most logical supposition. The woman smiled and returned to her coffee grinder. Wednesday looked up at their waitress. I think I shall have another espresso, if you do not mind. And tell me, as a pagan, who do you worship? Worship? That's right. I mean, I imagine you must have a pretty wide open field. So to whom do you set up your household altar? To whom do you bow down? To whom do you pray at dawn and at dusk? Her lips described several shapes without saying anything before she said, The Female Principle "'It's an empowerment thing, you know.' "'Indeed, and this female principal of yours, does she have a name?' "'She's the goddess within us all,' said the girl with the eyebrow ring, color rising to her cheek. "'She doesn't need a name.' "'Ah,' said Wednesday, with a wide monkey grin, "'so do you have mighty bacchanals in her honor? "'Do you drink blood wine under the full moon while scarlet candles burn in silver candle-holders?' Do you step naked into the sea foam, chanting ecstatically to your nameless goddess while the waves lick at your legs, lapping your thighs like the tongues of a thousand leopards? You're making fun of me, she said. We don't do any of that stuff you were saying. She took a deep breath. Shadow suspected that she was counting to ten. Any more coffees here? Another mochaccino for you, ma'am? Her smile was a lot like the one she had greeted them with when they had entered. They shook their heads, and the waitress turned to greet another customer. There, said Wednesday, is one who does not have the faith and will not have the fun. I hope you got a little bit of the flavor of Gaiman's humor there, because it really it, it really is a very funny book. And let me say now, I am not attributing anything to him. The agenda that I'm bringing to what he has written is my agenda but it really blows my mind how well they fit together so there are a few things about that excerpt that i just read that i want to focus on the first is the interiority you notice that the pagan the goddess doesn't need a name she's a feminine principle and she's the goddess within now i have no quarrel with the idea that we find the divine inside. But how meaningful do you think that really is in this young woman's life and is inside the only place that the divine or the god or goddess is located? Hillman says that when the external world grows enormous— That is, when the external world becomes titanic, then we turn to the internal self. So part of our response to this overwhelm, to the stress we were talking about earlier, to turn to the internal self. And when we turn to the internal self, then the external world grows enormous. So he's suggesting that when we make that turn inside, then we actually fuel the expansion of these massive abstract catastrophes in the outer world. Hillman even implicates depth psychology, his own field in this, because depth psychology came along at a time when our religious containers were no longer adequately holding the meaning that we wanted to find in an other, like a god. Or the world, or even an expanded sense of ourselves. Depth psychology ultimately, Hillman said, became the religion or theology and ritual of the inside, of our dreams, visions, reveries, feelings, insights. We explored the within, he says, but did we find the gods? So when we turn to the inside and we let our whole world be the inside, and we convince ourselves that everything outside is a reflection of us inside. We're fueling titanism. Now, another thing, going back to Gaiman, that I noticed that I think is worth mentioning here, is when Wednesday outlines to the young woman all the various ways that she might be worshiping, he brings in these marvelous sensory embodied experiences. Drinking wine, standing in the waves, feeling them lap your thighs like the tongues of a thousand leopards. And similarly, Hillman suggests that what we do is return to the world through the senses. Not purely the senses, senses without mind, but that we Return to the world by giving it our attention. That we engage with the specific and the particular. That rather than speaking of trees, we sit under that tree, the one that's in the backyard. The one that has that bird, you know, the one black-throated sparrow. The one that is the black throated sparrow, that truth be told, you suspect is the black throated sparrow that comes every day and sits on that branch. It is through our senses that we understand the specific and the particular presences that are around us. By seeing, really seeing, listening, touching, tasting, feeling, being felt. By the wind, by the ground. Hillman calls this kind of attention notitia, an act of the soul. William James called it eachness. We talk about being grounded. This is being grounded. Bringing yourself with your body, through your senses, your mind and your imagination, into presence, the presence of others, being present with others. Hillman writes, only well-shaped images fed by the senses can contain and differentiate our innate titanism. The titanic, the unlimited, the unbounded is also empty, unimagined, without images, without the presence of others. Now, one final word on this. Because we have been talking about God. And when you talk about God and gods, then we get into this question of belief. And I want to turn once again to that excerpt from Gaiman. When he lays out all of these various possibilities in front of the young pagan woman, some of them are things that we would associate with belief, you know, praying, the worshiping. But he lays out all of these possibilities. And then what does he say? He says, She doesn't have the faith, and she doesn't have the fun. And what I hear in that is these old gods, the differentiated gods, the differentiated images that we perceive through the senses, we do not have to worship them in the way that we think of as being traditionally religious. We don't have to believe in them. We just need to be with them. We need to recognize them. We need to name them. This is Hillman's polytheistic, animated world of the gods, little g. A world that engages our heart and our imagination, in which we can truly be grounded. And it is, he suggests, a cure for the Titanic, for the unbounded, the abstract, and empty. So that's it for me, Catherine Civella, and Myth in the Mojave for this week. Feel free to contact me if you have questions or comments about today's program. If you're new to Myth in the Mojave, I hope you'll go to the website or the Facebook page and subscribe so that you receive regular program announcements every time I release a new episode. If you're finding value in Myth in the Mojave, join our community on Bandcamp. For only $5 a month, you have unlimited access to all of the programs as well as free downloads of anything new that I create and the satisfaction of knowing that you're an active and important part of making this program happen. Thank you so much for listening. Please tune in next time. And until then, happy myth-making and keep the mystery in your life alive.